0: go back a couple of nights ago, back to where I finished in, what was it, Thursday. <laughs> the days are getting kind of squashed. Um go back to Thursday evening, I was talking about, obviously, the distortions of perception, the Vipalasas, yet again. And I particularly finished off on the notions of the self, and what it means to be a self in many ways, what a burden it is to be a self in the attempting to be a fixed self of any sort. So I just wanted to kind of connect that, but with a couple of quotations just to start off the evening before we sort of slightly move on a bit from this. And uh, they're actually too, from from non-Buddhist source, but... Uh, I think they're very opposite to what we've been talking about. The creature we help to save, though only a half reared linnet, bruised and lost by the wayside, how we watch and fence it and dote on its signs of recovery. Our pride becomes loving. Our self is a not self for whose sake we become virtuous when we set to some hidden work of reclaiming a life from misery. And look for our triumph simply in the secret joy that this one is better for me. And this is the second quote. It's from the same work. Look on other lives beside your own. See what their troubles are and how they are born. Try to care about something in this vast world beside the gratifications of small selfish desires. Try to care for what is best in thought and action, something that is good apart from the accidents of your own lot. Now, that's uh, from an English author, and it comes out of a work by George Eliot, Uh, both of those quotations. It comes from Daniel Deronda, for those who are interested. But what they obviously play up is the sense of not being this fixed self, of somehow losing this immersion in selfishness that I was speaking about. Remember I spoke about the myth of narcissus and how we're literally drowning in ourselves. Well, this is such a vast part, I think, of our culture where we are really steeped in ourselves so much. It's very difficult for others even to be seen Um, even to be seen in our relationships. I came across a cartoon, again, I've often quoted here, but I might as well say it again. I came across a cartoon quite a number of years ago, which was, I think, said it all about human relationships. Um, It was a man and a woman sitting around a table. And uh, she was kind of leaning back in the chair, and he was leaning across the table. And it was was a long cartoon. It was was about 20 squares. Um, And above the bubble in his head, in the bubble above his head, in each of the little squares as he's leaning across the table, it goes, me 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 (laughs) and it goes on like this for ages and ages and it gets, he's obviously finished saying what he's saying, so he leans back in the chair she leans across the table and in the bubble above her head comes up, me (laughs) (laughs) And he goes. <laughs> so I think that's a, said a lot about human relationships. You know, there's there's a lot of meing and eyeing going on <laughs> um, in our in our relationships. We get stuck in this sense of self that we have. Um, We get so immersed in it that we don't actually see through the illusion of this self that there isn't any fixity whatsoever, that it's simply a process of selfing, just this verb form that I kept on about um, the previous evening. The French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once wrote a paper back in the 1940s, um, which became very influential actually in child psychology, it was called The Mirror Stage. And it was about developmental psychology with uh, children. And we talked about how children, you know, very young babies, often go through this mirroring relationship with a parent, or literally come across um, a physical mirror, which unifies um, their unifies their image and their sense of themselves. And actually, this is implanted into the individual. And so, what we're searching for is some unified sense of self, always. But then he goes on to say, and it basically comes out that sort of apes are more intelligent than humans. Um, He says, you know, he starts to explore what happens with apes when they get mirrors. Have you ever seen what happens with apes when they get mirrors? And actually, animals when they get mirrors in general, not just apes. Um, But actually, you know, that uh, an ape will hold a mirror like this, and it will look. And then lose all interest. Human beings, when they get a mirror, (laughs) you know where I'm going, don't you? (laughs) And that goes on forever. (laughs) You know, that deep narcissistic love of ourselves. Now, what Eliot is talking about in that passage, which I think is why it's, for me anyway, I don't know how, how you um, took it, but I find it quite powerful because what she's talking about is the clearing away of self. The clearing away of self, for example, for the arising of compassion, uh, for the arising of being able to engage genuinely with others. You know, the dropping away, as she puts it, of small selfish desires, you know, when there is this sense of self and we're immersed in the sense of self, um, there can be very little room for uh, this genuine connectedness with others. You know, I don't, I mean, some of you probably know the work of Harold Pinter. Is, you know, a lot of human relationships like being locked inside a Harold Pinter play where nobody really speaks to each other. You know, they're just engaged in their own monologues. Um, with very, very little connectedness between uh, individuals, and this passes for human relationship. It's a very sad reflection, I think, often on um, our human condition, that this does pass for for genuine relationship at all. Now, this whole project, which includes the projects, obviously, of mindfulness, is about this clearing away, beginning to in some sense, deflate the, the balloon of the ego, you know, starting to puncture it by seeing what actually is going on, what really is happening, to open us up to possibilities that actually hitherto as ego selves attached to the sense of being an ego self, we have very little um, vision of these future possibilities, these other ways of being in this world. And so actually the, the beautiful elements of, you know, of what we could call the human condition remain actually distant from us. They never become near such as compassion and friendliness and empathy and genuine joy. These surface, but they, don't, they only surface briefly. Now, what the Buddha was really speaking about in his teaching was building on these things which actually surface briefly, actually developing them, actually cultivating them. And in the act of cultivating these, of course, this notion of the self starts to drop away, this idea of fixity, of being a something in this world, no matter what means you use to achieve that sense of being a something in this world, really start to drop away. And we're left with action, which is much, much more spontaneous. Now, this is a job of a lifetime. This is the work of a lifetime. Um, As I often put it, the path of mindfulness is not a hobby. It's something which we have to engage in for the whole of our lives. And if there was any point to what I was doing, and I've said this to a couple of people actually at the interviews today, if there was any point to giving just a little bit of you know, kind of biography last night about myself, a autobiography, it was really to make clear that this is something for life. You know, this is not something that um, we pick up lightly. I think the Buddha was very cunning. I don't know if you've noticed this. You know, because once you embark on the path of mindfulness, it's very difficult to retract your feet. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. You can't actually retract it. It's a really cunning stunt to get you to engage in this. You know, and just test out a little bit of mindfulness. Now of course, you can go back to doing the same things. I mean, we all do this from time to time, don't we? but you never do it with quite the same feeling that it had before. Yeah, it somehow has a hollowness to it which it didn't possess when you were fully engaged in that mode of behavior. So what mindfulness is doing, as it does with all of our thought processes, it starts to open up a gap between what we see and the witness of what we see so that we're not absolutely totally immersed in it. We're not in the realm of thought, engaged and just being caught up in that train. And I'll either talk tonight or tomorrow night a little bit more about papancha, about this obsessional, um, profusive, dispersed thinking that we engage in a lot of the time, which really passes for seemingly focused thought. It's not really thought. Most of it is one of the areas which we papancha around, you know, is self this is one of the main activities there are other two other activities there's uh, sensual desire which we pupunch around a lot and viewpoints Mm -hmm. views outlooks on life actually it's a deep set of opinions that passes for knowledge about life including opinions about ourselves So these are the three areas. It doesn't sound very promising, does it? You know, this is what most of our thinking is devoted to. Getting things, stimulation, novelty, because these are all parts of sensual desire as well. You know, Entertain me. I want to be entertained. You know, all of this novelty, all of this stimulation that we require in our lives, all of this newness, this boredom with seemingly, oh, I've seen that, I've done that. You know, All of this is part of sensual desire, so it's not just the accumulation of things. You know, That's a big part of our society, that's a big part of the way we behave, but it's not just that. When we're out in this strung out sense of looking for the new, always looking for the new, never actually really experiencing what is in front of us with any kind of real vision or any real perspicacity behind what we see, yeah. boredom is a very, as I say, underrated state, I think I said this on the very first night, it has to be passed through rather than rejected rather than evaded <clears throat> the others you know, our viewpoints, well we're deeply, deeply immersed in opinionatedness about the world you yeah. know Now, some of that opinionatedness is uh, self-formed. It revolves around ourself. It revolves around our conditioning. It revolves around our histories and all the sorts of things about our lives. But it also comes from external sources. I mean, some of the opinions that we have, actually you probably don't realize because they feel like they are us, are actually externally imported. They come from things like media Particularly, they come from the opinions of others, parents, relatives, friends. You know, we take these on board and we think that they are us, again. And then we just revolve around ourselves endlessly doing the meing bit. bit. You know, this is not a terribly elevated view of the human condition, is it? You know, If that's going on. Now, the Buddha is only saying these things because it doesn't have to be this way. You know? Um, A a lot of the point of this seemingly negative diagnosis that we're engaging in is actually to wake us up to the point that we don't have to be like this. We do not have to be in this, what I call, semi-degraded condition in the way that we live our lives, acting almost like robots most of the time. You know, um, being sort of almost comatose in the way that we operate around the world. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was very sceptical about this, you know, about, very cynical, actually, I should say, rather than sceptical. He was very cynical about this and said, you know, most people are dead by the age of 25, that they're just not buried until 70. <laughs> yeah, because um, that's the way... Often people behave, that all of the opinions is formed, they know the world, this is the way things are, you know. and they, you know, they literally almost died to life, almost died to the dynamism that can be there. Now the whole point of this path, the whole point of mindfulness, is to, to wake us up to the possibilities that we have, to the means to cultivate literally that which is before us to see wonder in the things that are around us, not to get attached to them, not to grasp after them, but I don't know if it ever strikes you that there's a sense of wondrousness about this world that we live in. Of course, there's lots of bad things that go on. Of course, there's lots of horribly depressing things that are happening in this world, but there's also, on the other side of it, a tremendous amount of beauty. There's a tremendous amount of goodness in this world as well which often we don't see um, you know, because of this sense of self but, you know, the, the I that we spoke about you know, Thursday night I've spoken a little bit about tonight obfuscates, actually blocks our view it blocks us seeing so actually what we often get even in our relationships but actually particularly in our relationships is just a pale version of myself you know rather than seeing an other yeah. we don't actually see another what we want is ourselves reflected back so if we're talking about mirrors in the way that lacan talks about mirrors then actually what we want is a mirror reflection of ourselves yeah. this is what again passes for human relationship now the um the means to beginning to deal with the distortions of perception and the errors in perception in general, including the error, the perceptive error of thinking that there is a substantive I beneath this flux of experience, which is which is myself. I'm still gonna to continue to use those. It'd be rather odd, wouldn't it, to use, you know, drop out of our language, I, me, mine. But when we start to really probe this, when we start to really investigate, then they cease to have the efficacy that they once had. They start to ring a lot more hollow, and we hold them in very, very different ways, these particular possessives, the first person pronoun and the possessives of I, me, mine. So we begin to probe it with mindfulness. This is one of the ways that... uh, The major way that the Buddha recommends the others, of course, is through the development of things like the Brahmaviharas. The Viharas, of course, are ways of developing interrelationship. Relationship Relationship through friendliness, relationship through compassion. Compassion even is a strange word for the translation of karuna. Um, this again, for, the, for there to be this well, in a sense what I call friendliness in action because this is what it is Karuna has actually derived from a root in, in Sanskrit and Pali which literally means to turn outwards yeah, This is the whole point of it It comes from the same verb as Kriya which means also to do in Pali and Sanskrit So what's being indicated in the movement, almost the internal movement that has to occur for there to be something like outgoing kindness, compassion, um, this friendliness which I've spoken about. In fact, we've been practicing with the metta practice. There has to be this turning around, literally internally. We turn away from our own selfish, neurotic, desires, turn outwards and you actually see that we inhabit a world with others, others who are often in great pain, in great woundedness in this world, and that then becomes the spur for action. But lest that gets too overwhelming, of course this is balanced by the sense of mudita, mudita Is the recognition, of course, that there isn't just pain in the world, but there is also good fortune. Others have their joys, their good fortunes. This is actually extremely difficult to practice. It's sometimes, sometimes even more difficult to practice than the, the friendliness and the compassion. This sense of having a sympathetic or empathetic joy, empathetic joy, at the good fortune of others. You know, even if you are not experiencing it yourself to, date, to take delight in another's delight yeah. uh, adds to the joy the stock of joy in the world which is not there and then balancing all of this out of course is you know, again one of the major themes of really what we've been trying to practice towards through the mindfulness here which is towards upeka, towards this Balancing this, this poise with which we can move through the world, rather than this imbalanced, unfocused, uh, drifting around that we often are doing in the world simply by being buffeted, literally, by the, the winds of our fortune, whatever is happening. So we're like yeah, a boat cast adrift on a sea, just being buffeted and tossed around by the waves. Again, I would suggest that this perhaps is no real way to live, just being tossed around in this way. That there isn't a great deal of, you know, there isn't a great deal of accomplishment in this, you know, in just being tossed around like a, a small boat on a very big sea. So upeka becomes this balance this movement through the world, this engagement with the world and movement through the world without being buffeted by continuously. Now, the root to all of this, really, is in this word mindfulness, which actually I'm beginning these days to loathe this word, (laughs) simply because I see it sort of plastered everywhere these days. Um, But... Yeah, I think we're stuck with it for quite a long time. Um, but the word sati is a very, again, interesting word in, in Pali. It really derives from a Sanskrit term, which is the word smirti, which actually means to recollect or to remember something. In Indian traditions, the word smirti actually referred to... Um, particularly the historical epics or so called historical epics of of India, which is the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Both of these were considered to be things that had been remembered and therefore passed down. Now the term sati retains a little bit of that. It retains retains particularly the sense of recollection. Yeah, I not one I love the word recollection in English. I don't know if anybody shares this love with me, but the word actually works extremely well in the context of what we're doing, because to re recollect, let's say it differently, let's hyphenate it, to recollect, to recollect ourselves in every moment, instead of dispersal and scattering and fragmentation, which is all too often part of our experience of you know, being a self, despite the fact that we're desperately trying to, you know, be this firm, fixed self in this world, actually, a lot of our experience is one of fragmentation. You know, we're we're working with an image which actually doesn't really bear any resemblance to really what is actually happening for most of us. You know, most of our experience is one of, of dispersal. You know, of being scattered. You know, the moment you sit down on the cushion, you see this, don't you? Where is the mind? Well, it's all over the place. It's here, there, and everywhere. It's that monkey jumping from branch to branch. It's it's Bhantigunaratna's madhouse. This is what we're, we're living most of the time, except in our busyness, we don't see it so clearly. The moment you sit down, the moment you stop, and this is why people don't stop, and this is why people are driven they keep on running in certain ways, and again I hope you recollect that from the quotation or paraphrase I gave you the other night, people are running in all directions is actually because they're frightened they're fearful of the silence, they're fearful of the chaos which they will encounter when you stop when you stop you begin to touch the chaos a little bit now the whole point of mindfulness is to recollect, to recollect, to take us from that sense of scatteredness and fragmentation into much more of a sense of wholeness, of being here. Yeah? The practice of mindfulness is really about being here. This is what it's about. It's about just being here in this world, not doing. Yeah? And some of you are familiar with mindfulness-based applications or you're familiar with this sort of language. As well, yeah, it's it's being, not doing. This is highlighted very much. However, mindfulness has many, many functions, um, and unfortunately, the mindfulness-based applications, even though I can can to do some work in that field, um, in many ways doesn't cover the full gamut of what mindfulness really is. But first of all, before we move on to that, by will Give you some, I'll share some of the images with you, which are used about mindfulness in the early texts, is that how are we' going to translate this word if we're not going to translate it as, as mindfulness? Well actually the, probably the best translation is, is a phrase, or at least a number of words strung together here, which we could call a phrase, which is present moment recollection. This is what mindfulness is. This is what sati is actually, the Pali word. This is what sati is, present moment recollection. It's the activity of gathering ourselves moment by moment in different ways and therefore starting to perform different functions according to what is needed by the nature of our minds at that moment. So actually what we've got instead of one thing is a whole plethora of different activities that uh, mindfulness is really you know, more of a generic term covering all of these differences. You know, so Sati has many, many different functions here. Now in one of the ancient texts, um, which is a huge thing, um, you know, it's in the English translation, it's getting on for about 1500 pages at least. Um, you have this section of the, what is known as the Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha. The connected discourses are literally those connected by theme. So they're all gathered under particular themes. And in this particular section, which is in Volume 2, so it shows you it's a big work, it's divided into two, two huge volumes. Um, in Volume 2 of the English translation, you'll find a section called the Satipatthana Sangyuta. Yeah. The Connected Discourses on Satipatthana. Satipatthana, remember, as I was saying, is ways of establishing our mindfulness. Yeah, let's continue to use this word. I mean, present moment, recollection is more accurate, but it doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't trip off the tongue quite so easily. Yeah. So when we look at this section, it's really about the ways that mindfulness becomes established. Now, as you know by now um, there is these four ways of establishing our mindfulness. Yeah? I hope you haven't forgotten yet yeah. particularly as this is about memory. You know, we establish it through the body, so it's through embodiment we establish it through the hedonistic spectrum the spectrum of the pleasant and unpleasant which is Vedana. So there's the ways of establishing it through Vedanta. and what we've been engaging in today, which is establishing it through citta, yeah. through the mind. Uh, the word Chitta often is used also as a synonym for consciousness, but in this particular instance it's establishing it through watching and actually coming close to how the mind is. You remember the phrase I've been using during the meditations today? How is your mind? Yeah. what is its moodedness? what is its coloration all of the things that I mentioned there and then finally through establishment of extremely important functions of the mind which one way can lead you to awakening and then the other way lead us to entrapment now there are many different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta in the Pali Canon Um, and many of the different versions. There's even Chinese translations of Sanskrit versions. Uh, We've lost the Sanskrit, but we still have the Chinese translations of them. Um, And there's many things that are often included in this section. The the two things which leads me to suspect these are the original two, um, which all of the versions agree on. And this is why I say there's one that leads you to awakening and one that leads you to entrapment. The ones that lead you to entrapment are the five hindrances. These lead to entrapment in this world. Remember the five hindrances? You'll get good at lists if you stay around this for very long. (laughs) There's sensual desire. There's ill will. There is, well, let's use the old-fashioned version, shall we? I'll be old-fashioned for once tonight. Sloth and torpor. There's restlessness and remorse. And then there is sceptical doubt as well. These are the things that will keep you entrapped. They are wonderful ways of tying yourself down into an entrapped condition. Yeah. This is literally what we are yoked and tied to. Yeah. We never really see the thing. So, so remember the image I was giving you the other night or oh, well, the other day, I think it was in the morning and I gave a little talk about uh, the nivaranas, the, the hindrances, was these were veiling operations. it's like throwing a cloth over something so I throw the cloth of sensual desire over something I don't actually see the thing all I see is my own desire that is all I'm seeing with aversion or ill will I'm doing exactly the same it's like taking that thing in front of me here this clock throwing the veil over it and I don't see it all I see is my aversion to it you see the vague shape of the object but you're not actually engaged with the object whatsoever and the same is true for all of the other instances (laughs) did somebody say let there be light (laughs) so we only see these you know we only see the veiling operations we don't actually see the Um, we don't actually see the objects which we're engaged with we only see our mental states hence the reason why for chitta again for understanding chitta to understand what we're engaged in because actually a lot of the moodedness of our minds are going to be things like desire going to be things like aversion are going to be things like sleepiness actually I don't actually see anything when I'm sleepy I'm just kind of there in my own miasmic world Um, We'll see the restlessness and we'll see the remorse, but we won't actually see what is there in front of our noses. We won't actually see what is directly in front of us. Then the other one that all these versions of the Satipatthana agree on also is the bojangas, the um, seven awakening factors, or the seven supports of awakening Bo, by the way, if you want to analyze the Pali here, Bo means awakening. Janga, or Anga, literally means a limb or a finger. You know, so these are the fingers or supports of awakening um, that are there. Uh, these are what actually support this process. And right at the head of what supports the awakening process is Sati, is Mindfulness. Yeah, this is considered to be the one in some senses that the others branch off and I'll mention these tomorrow night I won't go into them tonight but sati is the most important dimension this mindfulness this gatheredness this collectedness this recollection you know, when you're asked you know, what is going on in this present moment recollection well we're recollecting exactly what we're doing in this moment you know, by being gathered and collected in this moment, so that we know I am breathing. I know I am breathing in a long breath. I know if my mind is contracted. I know if there is lust in my mind, or greed, or aversion, or whatever it might be, that I actually know what is happening. A lot of the time, actually, if you noticed, it's... um, Really, we could look at our own minds and go, is anybody home? <laughs> you know, because it's often out there in the future, planning. We're fantastic planners. And let's not underestimate that this is a wonderful facility of the mind to be able to project and plan. But actually, if you notice how tiring it is? Yeah. And we don't need to be doing it all the time. Yeah. Why do we need to be planning when we're eating our food? Why do we need to be planning when we're sitting on the toilet? (laughs) We don't need to be planning all the time. So we can take this wonderful faculty, this ability to plan and project and to look into the future and that, um, and then actually start to overemphasize it and get caught up. And what does this overplanning lead to? I'm sure we all know, agitation. It leads to the agitated mind because they are always thinking outside. The German philosopher Heidegger described human beings as always being ahead of themselves. It's like always out there thinking about what is the next thing to do rather than actually being here. Actually being right at this moment gathered, collected, knowing what you're doing. So, sati is this important factor which is there. Now, there are many, many images to kind of highlight. And I'll probably get time to go through the images tonight and then we'll look at some of how these are used in the actual practice tomorrow night. The images that are used are, are wonderful images, some of them. I mean, the first image that's used is of a, a surgeon's probe, where if you have a wound, For example, like ancient India would be an arrowhead embedded in the flesh. Then the surgeon, to find out how to remove that arrowhead, would take the probe and insert it into the wound and start to feel and measure the dimensions of that which has to be removed. It starts to literally... Begin to see what they're dealing with. You know, now as you can imagine, with a wound, and this is what's used is actually an arrow wound. Um, you wouldn't be able to see much. There would be a hole. There would be an arrowhead stuck in, but you wouldn't be able to see what the arrowhead was like. You know, whether it was a barbed arrowhead, you know, or one with five spokes on it, or whatever. And so, what the surgeon is trying to do is actually probe its dimensions and find out what kind of arrowhead it is in order to remove it as safely as possible without tearing too much flesh in the process. It's a very striking image. So here's the, you know, what is actually happening is that sati begins to probe, if you like, our problems. It begins to find out by just beginning to, just like the surgeon's probe, insert it into our woundedness and begin to see you know, how these things can be removed out of our sense of, you know, out of our sense of pain, out of our sense of woundedness in this world. There's another image which is used in Sangyuta, uh, in the Saripatala Sangyuta, which is of an image of a gatekeeper on a city gate. Now, all of Indian cities in the ancient world, if you go to India and visit these, you know, places where the Buddha taught you will see all the city walls still of the places that he taught in and at the city gate there would be um, a watchman somebody who was there basically to see who were the friends and who were the enemies to keep the enemies out and to let the friends in as well so the job there of Sati of course who is the gatekeeper is to know what to let in into the mind you know, what to keep out there? so it's acting as a protective mechanism here and then there is again the image of the city walls with the gatekeeper with um, a messenger who's come to see the king who's run all the way to see the king on urgent business and there's the job of Sati here then to speed that messenger to the king. Yeah. To speed it to understanding, of literally um, passing the information or passing the message in. So it becomes about the passage, for example, of understanding into our minds. Yes, that's another job of sati. And then there is another image. <laughs> There's lots and lots of images, as I say. There is another image, which is the image of a man who is uh, balancing a bowl, a bit like this, a bowl of oil, of precious oil on his head. Behind him walks a man with a sword, and if he drops any of the oil out of it, he will lose his head immediately. Now, this is walking through a marketplace, and in the marketplace there is this most beautiful dancing girl. Yeah. Again, this is an image and i 'm sorry for the slightly sexist image, but it 's an ancient a very ancient image, but you know the image here is to convey the idea of you know sati is what keeps us focused, sati is what keeps us balanced in the midst of things that we can be attracted to, things which will literally throw us off balance and make us lose our head, yeah. It's a one again it's I think it's a wonderful metaphor that's being used here. Then there is um, a couple of images which are of a cow herder and uh, the cow herder uh, the first images of the cow herder when the corn is ripe, it's very high, and the cow herder has to work very, very hard to stop his cattle from going into the into the fields and destroying the crops, eating the crops. And so the cowherder has to stay extremely vigilant and he uses a stick to keep bringing the, you know, to tap the cattle, to bring them back into the pasture he wants them to be in rather than invading the fields. And again, this is an image of Sati as a way of bringing our minds back from danger, bringing our minds back into, if you like, pastures that it shouldn't go to here. Then there's an image, a much more image, to, a relaxed image of the cow herder, who is um, lying under a tree now. The um, harvest season has gone, the field, which was originally full of, of wheat or rice, has been cut, and it's just stubble there. And all the, um, all the cow herder now has to do is just look up occasionally to see that his cattle hasn't strayed too far. Yeah. So he's lying back under the tree, enjoying himself. Uh, just looking, overlooking and seeing, because there's no you know, nowhere these cows shouldn't go um, other than slightly too far away from him. That's all. So he's just kind of, just every so often he has to gently bring them back, but there's nothing there. And then finally, <laughs> then finally, and I'm going to pick this up tomorrow night um, and speak about this in detail. There is an image of six animals which are chained and they are tied to a post and these six animals and I'll tell you what they are tomorrow night are all trying to get to their own feeding grounds and the post to which they're tied is the only thing that keeps them there now, after a while, you can imagine what this because some of the, the, the animals are, for example, like birds and a, and a crocodile as well, which is there. I always think of the crocodile as the mind um, here. <laughs> All of them are trying to get to their feeding grounds, um, but, of course, it's the, it's the stake with the chains which keep them, um, if you like, in one place. And eventually the six animals settle down because they can't get away from us. Again, what you have an image of here, of course, um, and I'll go into in much more detail about this tomorrow night, is the six senses. And these are the six senses. What they're tied to, and I think this is probably a good place to finish for this evening anyway, what they're tied to is mindfulness of the body. Sati, kaya sati. Mindfulness of body, you know, actually being tied to something which is really here in this moment, right now, to which it's tied. Now, of course, the feeding grounds for the six senses, of course, are you know, the visual field, the audible field, you know, the tactile field. They're all trying to get to their own feeding grounds. They're all desperately trying to get there. You know, it's only this mindfulness which is actually keeping them in one place literally tying down our senses into this one thing. Simply being aware. Now, that's what the the cowherd under the tree is doing. He kind of looks up occasionally and says, hmm, yeah, they're still here. Yeah, no problem. That's what it's doing. Actually just noting what's coming up. This is the simple awareness dimension to it. But then, of course, there is also the protective awareness that we need. Sometimes, you know, and this is very much part of this tradition, sometimes it's just not good to go to certain places with your mind. You know, there is no virtue in going to, for example, real pain in your experience at this moment in time if you can't handle it. You know, there is a kind of view abroad that mindfulness has to go everywhere and put up with it. You know, that with a mind, you know, with mindfulness, we just kind of see everything that arises. This is just folly from the point of view of the early texts. Sometimes you just have to say, "No, I can't go there at the moment." And this is the wisdom about it. You know, the clearly knowing where to go and where not to go with your mind, given. Um, you know you know knowing where you are at this particular moment in time as regards your emotional states, you know? so we don't automatically probe pain, but we can do. Now this probing is introspective awareness. We begin to probe the dimensions of the painful objects in our lives, you know. That's a bit further on than the protective awareness. You know, the protective awareness is not letting those things in, like the gatekeeper, that don't need to be let in. You know, knowing that there are certain behaviours, for example, that we would, might not engage in. It's like the alcoholic knows that probably not a good place to go is the bar or the pub, yeah. if they're trying to become dry. These are not good places to go, and equally... Um, we can know, you know, in our own lives where are not good places to go, both with our mind and physically, uh, dependent on where we are. So that's the image of protective awareness. Now the probing is very, you know, it's a little bit further on from this because this is now starting to have established the mindfulness. Now I can start to probe the difficulties in my life as a way of extracting them of actually beginning to take them out of the centre of my life so we have that image as well then we have something which is actually not really isn't really covered in the images so much but is what's where we deliberately form useful concepts where we restructure for example the narrative around certain things which happen to us instead of looking for the idea that, you know, this person is irritating or, you know, what they're doing is irritating is the idea of restructuring it perhaps around something like they're just trying to get on with their life, you know. Somebody's hammering on the wall next door, you know, you can say, that's really irritating, or they're just trying to put a cupboard up. (laughs) You know, so you can restructure it for yourself in a way that starts to, if you like, take some of the toxicness, the toxicity, out of the way that we normally perceive here. So these are part of the many functions of mindfulness. Now I'm going to pick up tomorrow night in particular on the image of the six animals, because I think this is a really important image that I want to explore with you in a bit more detail tomorrow night. So I'll leave you with that this evening. Yeah. You'll find out who did it tomorrow. <laughs> 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 it was me! <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Okay, so we have about 25 minutes, or just under 25 minutes, before we sit again for the final sit.